The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Friday, October 10th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Two big announcements. One is we're starting to do some videos. I have one up. It shows TV news reporters holding up sheafs. Sheafs? Is that a word? Sheafs of paper? Sheaves of paper? And saying, I have the document. If I want a Peabody for this supercut on the backs of all these reporters who probably themselves didn't win the Peabody, it's unfair, but it is trending in that direction. The other big announcement we're making today is today the gist is debuting an edition of the gist for the tween market. We call it tween gist 14 because it's 2014. It's like for 14 year olds. Actually, it's for 12 year olds, but it's aspirational. Tween marketers will tell you this is how it works. It's going to be everything I do, all my interviews, but it'll be overdubbed by Aaron Carter. Actually, a 54 year old guy who sounds like Aaron Carter. Actually, that's not true at all. But I was reading the other day about how adult works, adult books are being tween-ized, or even 10 to 12-year-olds. You take a popular book, you take out maybe the stuff that would disturb a kid. Here's a couple examples. So John Meacham wrote that bio of Jefferson, very great book. But the parts with Sally Hemings, maybe you could allude to it or refer to it, but he gets into a little detail that a 10-year-old maybe won't know how to process. There was also a bestseller about a prisoner of war, but there was this long passage about duck torture, so that has to be different for the tween market. The New York Times, where I was reading this article, had this, though confused me. Mark Kurlansky, who has published illustrated children's editions of his best-selling nonfiction books, Cod and Salt, is releasing a 10-and-up version of his 2012 biography of Clarence Birdseye, the frozen food pioneer. Wow! You have to do an expurgated Clarence Birdseye? There's some too-hot-for-tween elements in the frozen food maven's bio? I mean, was there a, no, I meant frozen pea moment? So I looked. I did a big search about all the stuff I could find about Clarence Birdseye and this book about Birdseye. And I think that the challenge might making Birdseye to teenagers or to tweenagers. He didn't seem to lead that exciting a life. But you know, here you got this frozen food guy. You've got this other huge phenomenon based on stuff that's frozen that appeals to 12-year-olds. I say you marry it. You got to do the musical of Clarence Birdseye. Let it go, Mark Kurlansky. Let it go. But listen, you might disagree. And on the show today, that's my spiel, the value of disagreement. Also, we'll be joined by Prudy for a post-Prudy impact statement. But first, jury selection, racial bias, and the death penalty. Social scientists have demonstrated that race plays a role, a big role often, in deciding which defendants get the death penalty. From 1972 to about 1976, the Supreme Court issued a de facto moratorium on the death penalty. Potter Stewart wrote of his fellow justices, Byron White and William O. Douglas, quote, My concurring brothers have demonstrated that if any basis can be discerned for the selection of these few to be sentenced to death, it is the constitutionally impermissible basis of race. Years later, the Supreme Court heard evidence that the state of Georgia, 40% of the homicide cases involved white victims, but 87% of the cases in which a death sentence was imposed was 
with a white victim. Also, 22% of black defendants who kill white victims were sentenced to death. 3% of white defendants who kill black victims were sentenced to death. But all that stuff is about victims and defendants. There's another large group in the middle of those two groups, the jury itself. The Supreme Court has heard cases about using race as a basis to exclude jurors in general. But now journalist Dax Devlin-Ross in the Virginia Quarterly Review has put forth an ambitious and detailed examination of this phenomenon, black juror exclusion in capital trials. The name of the article is Bias in the Box. Hello, Dax. How are you doing today? I'm well. Nice. So you start in good journalistic form by getting us to care about a specific person. And you pull back a little bit and you tell about a man who was sentenced to death and it turns out that he was exonerated. What can you tell me about Daryl Hunt? Daryl Hunt is is well known by a lot of people, as a matter of fact. I mean, there's been a documentary made about him, his life, um, that came out, uh, I'd say, about seven years ago, perhaps. And it was on uh, HBO, yeah. and a lot of folks don't know his story. But I had an opportunity to spend some time with Daryl and, and his attorney, who's actually, they have a very close relationship, Mark Rabel. And they do work together at Wake Forest University. But I can say about him was that I, I think that he understands better than, for a lot of reasons, better than most people, what it can mean when you don't have a representative body making a decision about whether or not you should be set free or you should be sent to prison or you should be sent to the death chamber. And he actually had to live through that experience in the sense that he was, you know, he faced a trial. He faced a capital trial. He was very fortunate because the jury foreman in his trial said that there was something wrong, didn't really buy the whole thing. Right. Couldn't go forward, but he was still enough to convict him, just not enough. Yeah. The, the idea that death is different. And I think when Daryl Hunt's case was brought to us, I remember that documentary. Yeah. The main takeaways were things like a creaky justice system, a huge yeah. part about DNA, the yeah. miracle of DNA evidence, a lawyer who didn't quit. Much less emphasized, it wasn't ignored, yeah. was who convicted him. Now, yeah. he had a trial, a retrial. I think he had four different trials. Yeah. But 60 jurors and alternatives, yeah. how many were black? Good Lord. I mean, one, that's it. I mean, it was quite remarkable. And you think about that. You know, he was in Lee Lidden, Winston-Salem. And Winston-Salem, mm-hmm. North Carolina is a fairly diverse community. And so that the fact that you could only find one black juror that was qualified. What does one black juror on a jury do? Now, one black juror, one out of 12, that would be if 8.3% of the jurors were black. But th- that one black juror with 11 white jurors can make a big difference, you, sh- you uh, demonstrate. That can be the case. The diversity of the jury is so, so crucial because when you think about it, these are people who are spending day and night together. These are people who are deliberating and these are people who are ultimately making decisions, you know, that have a lot to do with their own experience of the world. When selecting a jury for a capital case, if a juror comes out and says, I can't give the death penalty, it is against my religion, it is against my morality, that juror is excluded from a death penalty trial. There's a logic to this. If someone says, I don't believe in imprisoning anyone, you can't let that person serve Mm -hmm. on a jury where prison time is given out. But what's the practical effect? The practical effect is that people who might have had an experience with the criminal justice system themselves, either through their family or through, through themselves, who might have a legitimate dispute with the way the whole criminal justice process operates are immediately excluded from the process. So you ultimately find that the people who are seated are people who 
are willing to sentence someone to die, yeah. which says a whole lot right there. And in fact, capital juries are disproportionately white men. It's not just yeah. black people. Women yeah. are often yep. exclude themselves yep. from juries, and white men are the most likely yep. to uh, impose death, and that's what we see happening. Yeah. Then there are the challenges. Each lawyer gets a certain yep. set of yep. preemptive challenges, yep. and they don't have to be justified at all, or they Yeah, ha- I mean, yeah. this is a really interesting thing. So, you know, the way that the preemptory process works is that I'm either the defense attorney or I'm a prosecutor. I can say, I want this person struck, and I do not have to provide an explanation for that, mm-hmm. right? Now, that said, the, the opposing counsel, and typically the defense counsel, can make an argument that there has been a violation of what's called, you know, the bats, and there's a bat, they can raise a bats in claim. That's the Supreme Court case from 1986, where they can say that they believe that there was something underneath that decision to strike that person. And that underneath is about race, about gender, but primarily about race. And that's the one sort of lane that they can operate in if they want to raise some kind of claim. But ultimately, you're right. They can't sit that that person's removed. They're gone. They're out the door. And how the math works is because we're talking about minorities. So let's say it's a two third white jury pool and a one third minority and each side gets 12 preemptory challenges. Well, it's a lot easier to exclude all the blacks than all the whites. Yeah. It just, this is just how it works Just out. by the numbers. Just yes. by the numbers. If who's walking through the door already, you have a disproportionately low number of people walking through the door already. And this is what happened in the case that I, t- I write about with this Andrew Ramsor. It's the main case that I write about, at least, of this kind of frames the whole story that I, that I write in the VQR piece, which was that the people who walked through the door there was a disproportionate number, low number of, of African-Americans who even showed up for jury service. And one of the things the lawyers asked and even, you know, raised an objection to was moving forward with the trial, given the fact that there were so few African-Americans who even showed up. So there's mm-hmm. a question of who's even being called. Yeah. I mean, they're in Statesville and uh, in Statesville, Statesville, there were a number North of people, Carolina. Statesville, North yeah. Carolina. There were a number Which is of two thirds white, one third black. Yes, about, absolutely. Yeah, there okay. is. This is a town that has a, a pretty, you know, sorted history, nevertheless. But there is diversity within this town. Mm -hmm. Yet the folks who are called for service, based on my interviews, based on the experiences that I had, were disproportionately white. So you have a lot of black folks who were were not being called at all. So you say of the 108 candidates who show up for Ramsor's jury selection, 12 were black. How are those 12 black excluded? So the first thing you do, you you face the judge. And the judge asks you that very basic question. Can you if the situation requires it, can you make a decision about death? Can you sentence someone to die? And a number of these black potential jurors, what they call potential Vernier members, mm-hmm. said because of their religious or moral views, they could not do it. Right. So what you're left with is a very, very shallow pool at that point of people. Based on that 12, you're, you're Xing out at that point eight, eight of the people. Yeah. Right. Right. And so then with the other black potential jurors, doesn't have to be motivated by racism. It's probably motivated by the prosecutor wanting to win the case. Yeah. But they know the thing to do is to exclude black jurors. And that's what they do. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, there's a subtle way in which that can happen. So in the case that we're talking about with Ram Sower, there was a gentleman by the name of John Nelson. Interestingly enough, I had to actually search to find this guy because I received all the jury questionnaires and there was every one of them in the jury questionnaires, all the, all the folks who actually showed up except for this one guy. Mm-hmm. And he happened to be what I actually found him through voter registration records, ended up spending time with this guy. He was the one juror, potential juror, I think, African-American, who really, really should have been seated. Now, he said very explicitly, you know, I think that the process is problematic, but if I'm presented with the choice... I will do what I'm called to do. And that is, if I have to convict someone to die, I will do it. He said it very explicitly. Yeah. And nevertheless, 
was removed. And a white potential juror said almost the exact same thing. And he was not just a potential juror. He became a juror. He became a juror. Yeah. And that potential juror, yeah. the frightening thing about the piece is that this potential juror that, that, would, that found that was seated on that juror number 10, was seated in this particular jury, actually said very, he wrote in his jury questionnaire that he had been attacked by four and he wrote black guys mm-hmm. in, in a parking lot of a fast food chain. And he fought them off at gunpoint. And he wrote in explanation marks in, in you know, all capital letters and won. And so when he's asked about it by the, by the prosecution, prosecution sort of just said, how do you feel about this? Do you think that will in any way affect your ability, given the fact this is a young African-American and we're dealing with white victims? Do you think that will in any way influence your decision, your outcome? No, not at all. No, not at all. And that's just taken at face value. There's another big thing that you hint at, but I was struck. Think about how people think of jury duty. There have been a lot of, I mean, okay, so there have been these protests in Ferguson, and so that's about the right to assemble, and I definitely think different populations of people put a value in that. You know, people want to demonstrate, have their voice be heard, pursue their right to assemble. The same, of course, with voting. But, you know, with jury duty, I don't hear black preachers talking about, I mean, look, I don't go to black church on Sunday, but you don't hear black preachers necessarily saying that I definitely hear you got to vote and I definitely hear, you know, let's organize and protest. I don't hear when you're called for jury duty, you got to go or you got to register to get called for jury duty. I don't see people talking about jury duty as a proud civic thing. You know, they'll say, hey, did you vote? I voted. You got to vote. I don't hear the same thing with jury duty. And you're right. There are a lot of institutional obstacles. um, If you have prosecutors who have these preemptory challenges and they know what they're doing. But I think maybe a part of it can be getting people to look at jury duty like more than a duty, like, yep. you know, something affirmative. Yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain sexiness to voting. We can sort of, because you go in, you do the ballot, you walk, you know, you, you just make your decision and you move on with your life. And that's something that sadly, I think, appeals to Americans in a lot of ways. We can sort of do this symbolic demonstration of our civic engagement. But jury duty is a little different yeah. because you'd not, it's kind of open-ended depending on the actual trial that you might find yourself sitting on. And it may be a job that you might, you know, your job might give you some flack about it. Then there's your kids. So there's all these other pieces that are associated with it. But nevertheless, when you start to look at the impact of folks who, you know, I've seen it in Brooklyn. I remember sitting in in courts in Brooklyn and people kind of raising their hand and and giving these, you know, these, these baloney excuses to get out of jury service because ultimately what they're saying is they just don't want to be bothered. Yeah. You know, and yet and still, if it was them, yeah. if it was them who was sitting there as a defense, they would hope that the representation of the jury and the people who decided to be on there would be fair, care about the system, blah, 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 blah. And they don't, you know, so we got to understand that there's a quid pro quo here. I will say, even though you're right, part of the problem is that jury service is not part of the public dialogue the way yep. voting is. Voting's a visible demonstration of our contribution to democracy in a culture that prizes choice and convenience. Serving on a jury is viewed as quite the opposite. Though you say that, you also do track down the these black jurors, yep. potential jurors in this trial, yep. who were pretty offended that they were excluded. Yeah. They actually wanted to do their yeah. I mean, duty. I, there was one guy. Didn't he? He, he didn't make it into the piece, but I thought he was really important. His, his name is uh, William Radcliffe. I, I met him down. I spent some time with him in his home, and he's a you know he's a deacon at his church. He was in um, the Korean War. He's a veteran. He's a foster parent, taking in children even at an advanced age. Still has foster children in his home. And when he was interviewed and informed in the ACLU and and actually the the Capital Punishment Project actually interviewed him a few years back, when they first interviewed him and told him the reason that he was excluded, he teared up. Yeah. Because here's a person who's, you know, who's given his life to this country. 
who has made every effort he can possibly make to demonstrate his citizenship and his willingness to die for this country. And yet he's still not good enough. And I think that's the hurtful thing for people. And the other hurtful thing is that there's a way in which, you know, there's another woman that I interviewed in the piece. And, you know, I thought she tells a story of of how she's told that because her father had been killed, there's a perception that she might not be fair. And while a white woman whose brother had been killed, who explicitly says she thinks that could influence her decision making in this trial. She seated- Right. The white woman said, yes, it will influence me. The black woman who had a dead family member who also had a family member, brother who was, was a, a cop, cop. Yes. said it won't influence me. White woman accepted, black woman yeah. excluded. And this creates a certain bitterness in people. And Brian Stevenson um, runs the Equal Justice Initiative down in Alabama. He says it very well, and I talk about it in the piece, but it's almost as if you're being punished over and over and over again because you've been discriminated against. Because your parents, your grandparents, everybody's been discriminated against. Your children will be, and it's all because there's a perception now, because you've been wounded by the system, you can't be fair. Bias in the Box is the name of the piece in the Virginia Quarterly Review. It's one of these pieces that makes you think and has awesome stats. I respond to those. Also, it's a great narrative. You wonder what's going to happen in this trial. So it hinges on a question that you want to see answered. Dax Devlin Ross wrote the piece, and we should also say that piece uh, was brought about and made possible by funding from the Nation Institute's investigative fund. Dax, thanks so much. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And now the latest development in Living Longer brought to you by Prudential Financial. The wedding vow, till death do us part, is a much bigger commitment today than it used to be. With retirement now lasting decades rather than just a few years, couples who stay married need to find ways of revitalizing their relationships. Couples need to socialize with new people, take up novel activities, and find new learning experiences to keep a marriage thriving. Those people who choose divorce, as growing numbers of older Americans do, face the challenges and excitement of new love. And regardless of marital status, advances in geriatric medicine mean more grandparents are healthy enough to play active roles in their children's and grandchildren's lives. Find out what longevity research is teaching us about the complexities of family life in an era of rising life expectancies. Visit Slate.com slash Living Longer. The Living Longer Project is sponsored by Prudential. So one of the, nah, I'll say it, the most popular feature on Slate is Dear Prudy. She's a columnist. She delves into all the mishigas of human experience. And with a gimlet eye, she tells people what need to be done, what they need to hear. Emily Yaffe is Dear Prudence, and she joins us from time to time to do a post-Prudence impact statement. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. Hi. So what topic, what person are we going to talk to today who you once gave advice to? We're talking to a woman who signed herself, the shot is safe, and she was complaining that she has lost a dear friend to the anti-vaccination movement. She says this friend uh, has always been an intelligent, delightful person who has now become obsessed uh, with vaccines, how they're going to kill all of us. When they're not killing all of us, it's going to be processed foods. And she says even when she sees her friend and tries to move the conversation away, it inevitably comes back. So she wrote asking, do I give up my friend? Do I say something? What do I do? I think there's a conundrum. It's not just that the friend is boring, or maybe it is. Maybe the friend is boring in a one-track mind and a one-note record, but also the friend is wrong and dangerous to your kids in a way. 
Well, that's the problem with this. It's one thing if you say, I am going to thresh all my own wheat and bake my own bread. It's another if your kids and their increasing number of kids are going to school unvaccinated because we lose herd immunity. And so these people are dangerous to the public health. Right, right. If they were doing something that was actively harmful, you know, if she sent her kids armed to public school, maybe you wouldn't want to be friends with her. It's not that different. Okay, it's a little different, but it's similar to this, uh, given the question of herd immunity. So I said to her, you have to speak up. Not not only do you have to speak up, to me, there was something concerning about feeling I've lost someone. Someone has become obsessed. She now has a monomania. And that's an indication possibly of mental ill health, although I understand on this subject, a lot of people share it. I said I thought she should just say to her friend, I would agree to disagree with you, but I can't even do that. You won't talk about anything else. And I thought that she should maybe talk to the husband or someone else close to her and say, you know, maybe she wants needs to see a doctor if, in fact, she's kind of spiraling into obsession, although I'm sure this woman would think the doctor was part of the conspiracy. Right. Okay. So that's good advice. Go to people who can be a touchstone, who don't share her monomania, who could maybe even diagnose it to the friend, the person who wrote to you for advice, who can say, yeah, she's really gone too far and maybe, you know, provide her with uh, a way back to reality. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's call her. Hello. Hello. This is Mike and Emily, and we're trying to reach someone who calls herself the shot is safe. Is that person you? Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. How are you? I'm Mike, and say hi, Emily. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, Emily, why don't you take the inquiry from here? Okay, shot. Uh, you laid out this problem. You've essentially lost a good friend to a monomania about vaccines. What did you do, and what's happened? Okay, so uh, basically, I kind of scrounged around on her husband's Facebook. And he's totally complicit. He's just as into it as she is. Honestly, I just kind of let it go. Hmm. Kind of stopped talking to her. We stopped texting. Which, you know, it's hard. We've been friends for a long time. But oddly enough, a month or so ago, she reached out to me. was like, hey, happy birthday. How's it going? So it's been really superficial. Mm-hmm. You know, at least I have that. I can talk about the weather. What a great basis for a friendship, right? At least she doesn't bring up climate change, okay? so. <laughs> oh, no, that's totally real, and it is the government's fault. <laughs> like, legitimately, it's the government's fault. You, you haven't even had a let's agree to disagree conversation. You just don't talk about anything of substance with this friend. Well, we kind of had a point where it was let's agree to disagree, and that's kind of what kicked off our not really talking because before you answered my question, I made a comment on something she posted and it turned on Facebook and it turned into basically, and, and I quote, vaccines have never done anything good for anyone. And wow. I, was, yeah, I was like, um, you know what polio looks like? No, that's why. Yeah, or smallpox. Thank you. Right. Shot, how long had you been friends with this woman and had she always had ups, an obsessional nature? We've been friends for, what, nine years now? Uh Uh-huh. 
And she's always been very crunchy and kind of got me into it a little bit. And I think, I mean, what set her off so bad was um, the house she was living in had a really bad mold infestation to the point where, I mean, they had to throw away everything they owned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in her efforts to figure out what was going on, because it took them a while to figure that out, you WebMD something and now you have cancer when really you yeah. have a headache. And Emily put forth the idea that maybe she has a, a serious mental illness, maybe she has a monomania, and that could be the case. Uh, but another interpretation would be that there's so much, like when you have a mold infestation or something like that, there's so much uncertainty and anxiety. It's just a way to order the universe to blame everything on Frankenfood or plastic bottles or there's, you know, a next step to blame everything on vaccines and maybe that's going on. Yeah, kind of hard to be around, but I'm always really paranoid if I ever have to see her. Like, I'm terrified of her child. (laughs) We were talking about this, that these kids are a public health menace, and that's really sad. And he's super sweet, too, but I just, like, his birthday's coming up, and I know I'm going to get an invite, and I don't want to go in a hazmat suit, because I think that might be... Well, you don't want to you don't want to get as monomaniacal as she is. But you know what? This is a sad thing about friendships. Sometimes they end. You people just go different ways. I was hopeful that maybe someone else in her life, a husband, could say, "Honey, we got to reel it back." But when you're in a folly a deux, the two of them are encouraging each other. It sounds like this relationship is really a lost cause. It's always too bad, though. Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, we can't vaccinate you from a broken heart, Shada Safe. But we thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm such a ridiculously huge fan. It's almost embarrassing. Me oh, too, no, right? No, I love good, Emily as That's good. Much. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a vaccine for that. Don't you worry. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yes. Bye. Thank Bye. You. Thank you. Thanks. Sometimes you lose them through no fault of your own, Emily. This woman did everything. Let's change the subject. Let's talk about something else. There is nothing else. So what do you do? Sometimes you just move on from people in your life. Emily Yaffe is the author of the Dear Prudence column at Slate.com. And this has been a post pretty impact statement. Thank you, Emily. Thanks. These days you could get everything on demand, like toast. You put it in the toaster. Bread becomes toast. On the other hand... They just invented a detoaster. You could demand that your toast becomes bread. And you know that Hello Kitty toaster that makes a piece of toast that looks like Hello Kitty? If you put that in the detoaster, it winds up looking like Edward G. Robinson. We're not sure how. But more to the point is the post office. Why are you going to the post office? Why are you dealing with their hours? Don't deal with their hours. Deal with Stamps.com. And does Stamps.com have a deal for you? Anything you could do at the post office, you could do right now from your desk with Stamps.com, like buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Here's the deal. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale. So here's the deal. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. I like that up to $55 part. Yeah, use all $55. Don't stop at $45. Go to $55. Here's what you do. You go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone on top of the homepage and type in the gist. That is our promo code that gets you the special offer. Go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone on the top of the homepage. The gist stamps.com. Try it.
And now the spiel. Disagreement agrees with me. Last week on Bill Maher's HBO show, there was a debate by which I mean a group of non-Muslims talking over each other about Islam. Here's a little bit. But why are you so hostile about this? It's it's gross. It's racist. It's not. It's but it's so not. So it's like saying those are shifty Jews. You're not listening to what we are saying. You guys are saying if you want to be liberals, believe in liberal principles like freedom of speech, like um, you know we are endowed by our uh, forefathers with an inalienable right. All men are created. No, Ben. We have to be able to criticize bad ideas. Of course we do. No liberal doesn't want to criticize bad ideas. But Islam moment is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have we have that showed all the elements you're looking for in a TV show. Ben Affleck, indignant. Bill Maher, condescending. Nick Kristoff, patient. Sam Harris, atheistic. Michael Steele, just sitting there. Audience applauding for no reason. Ratings gold. Then a week later, a week or two later, Reza Aslan, an actual Muslim, went on CNN. Now, just him being there, I mean, as a Muslim, he represents 0.0000015% of the world's Muslims. He said this. I like Bill Maher. I've been on his show a bunch of times. He's a comedian. But, you know, frankly, when it comes to the topic of religion, he's not very sophisticated in the way that he thinks. I mean, the argument about the female genital mutilation being an Islamic problem is a perfect example of that. It's not an Islamic problem. It's an African problem. Well, I mean, wait, wait, wait. Because he female... says it's a... Hold on, hold on a second, Because he says it's a, a Muslim country problem. He says that in Somalia... Yeah, but that's... Yeah, and that's actually empirically, factually incorrect. It's a Central African problem. Eritrea has almost 90% female genital mutilation. It's a Christian country. Ethiopia has 75% uh, female genital mutilation. It's a Christian country. Then Aslan, above a chyron on the screen with the words, does Islam promote violence, said this. You make these facile arguments like that women are somehow mistreated in the Muslim world. Well, that's certainly true in many Muslim-majority countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you know that Muslims have elected seven women as their heads of states uh, in those Muslim-majority countries? How many women but it is do not, we have but as head of the most part, in Reza, the United States? Reza, be honest, though, for the most part, it is not a, a free and open society for women in those states. Huh. Interesting question. Reza Aslan's gigantically wide eyes at this point reflect that. Let me tell you what's happening here. A lot of observers are saying what was happening is Reza Aslan owning CNN or owning them. This is a thing that people write on the internet. Own instead of own. Or they said that Ben Affleck was owning or poning Bill Maher. Or on YouTube they said, watch as Ben Affleck slams Bill Maher's Islamophobia. Peter Beinart in The Atlantic wrote an article titled, Bill Maher's Dangerous Critique of Islam. There is a constructive way for liberals to oppose illiberalism. And then there's the approach the comedian took. No, I don't think so. I disagree. In fact, what I think is going on is you had two sides disagreeing. It wasn't constructive, unconstructive, things that shouldn't be said, poning. Some people don't like disagreement or think others don't like disagreement. They don't know how to process it. It doesn't make them feel good. And I think we're increasingly failing to see the value in disagreeing. Granted, disagreement can easily veer into shouting or bullying or baiting or clapping at the dumb parts. But Reza Aslan was laying some knowledge on me there. He was, I don't think, poning anyone. He was instructing me. I didn't know about the heads of seven Muslim states being women. And while the Bill Maher debate veered towards the pubnoxious, it was fine too. It was a disagreement. You know, if you take out all the distractions, you had classic elements of an argument. There was a struggle over the definition of terms. There were competing assertions as to what the relevant facts were. There was a thesis offered. 
that adherents of Islam aren't peaceful. There was a counter-argument. The vast majority are. There was a rebuttal. Well, enough aren't that it's a dangerous religion. There was questioning the premise about how vast a majority that was. The parts where it breaks down and doesn't get useful is when the debaters, the combatants, step outside the arguments and start discussing each other, each other's motivations, existential questions about the argument, using words like gross or unfair or racist. Look, you can take all the points in that HBO debate, reformat it a little bit, take out words like gross and racist, and just have a useful point-counterpoint. A vast majority of Muslims believe in capital punishment for apostasy. Counter-argument. Not all Muslims and Christians used to also. Counter-counter-argument. Christians today, by and large, don't, and so many Muslims do. That alone is a problem. You know, there's that assertion. Some Muslim countries elect women heads of state. There's the counter-argument. Ah, but some Muslim countries don't let women drive. Okay, now let's think of it this way. Let's say you have those two set of facts. Doesn't that show that the problem isn't the religion, but the society that that particular religion is operating in? I mean, it somewhat approaches the scientific method of isolating a variable. I like that. Rhetoric, debate, facts, persuasion. So stepping away from the particular argument, it seems to me that we've gotten a lot worse at disagreeing. You may disagree, but I think public arguments used to be pitched more towards a perceived audience who might actually disagree with the argument. I'm sure there was a lot of preaching to the choir 150, whatever, 150 years ago, but media has become more siloed. And as we compete for smaller slices of audience, it's become much more viable to just put out pieces that just need to buck up the spirits or confirm the opinions of those on your side already. I conjure this picture. It might just be my imagination, but, you know, a columnist from the old gray lady arguing that, say, the U.S. should recognize red China. Scotty Reston imagining where this argument might land, saying to himself, if I lay it out carefully and respectfully, I could change someone's mind or convince someone. Now I think the equivalent of Scotty Reston, and yeah, it's been open to a much broader swath of society who gets to make the argument, but the equivalent is, all right, how do I make Bill Maher look not just like a super big asshole, but a racist, sexist, privileged, ignorant white asshole, and that'll be my value added. Recently on this show, I offered an opinion. It was of this parody ad of Say Yes to the Dress. I said, I didn't think it was inherently sexist. I was told I don't get to make that decision. Mm -hmm. I was tone deaf. I was telling listeners what to think. I was arbitrating what was sexist, and it wasn't a position for which I have standing. I think that's a long and charged way to say, I disagree with you. And that would be fine. I just don't like the, you don't get to make that argument. He doesn't get to make that argument. Yes, having a podcast helps me disseminate arguments, but we all get to make arguments. And, you know, some people have great standing to make argument. And because of that, you put a lot more credence into their argument. When John Lewis was beaten in Selma, Alabama, calls something racist, you might put more stock into that when Steve from Waterloo, Iowa, who tells Hannity, you're a great American, first time, long time, says something isn't racist. But look, Steve can have a good point, and you can too, and you might be able to agree with him or disagree with him. As much as our Twitter feeds seem geared towards accommodating messages of squee for a tweet we like, I think we humans love disagreement. If drama is conflict, why wouldn't disagreement be inherently interesting? When I'm doing a discussion before an audience, and I say, someone says something, and then I say, you know, I disagree, I see everyone perk up a little. Humans want to know why. Make your case. Tell me how. I disagree postures change the gazes become fixed i disagree this is a good-looking crowd and fragrant too 
There's an idea that an audience is not going to emotionally respond to someone they disagree with. That people who put forth opinions, if they want to be thought of as brands, they need to build affinity. So in the end, it all adds up to tweets of squee. I disagree. For a large part of the audience, I don't think they mind a good disagreement. It won't forever sully the disagreed with figure in the audience's eyes. And if the argument is sound and if the disagreement is honest, then an expressed opinion doesn't need to be subscribed to in order to be valued. I bet you're on board with this. If not, I'm sure you'll unsquee me on Twitter. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist. She's working on a version of Seabiscuit, specifically marketed to horses. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has an updated version of The Godfather for high school students, where the five families will be different cliques of popular girls. And when Salazzo kidnaps the Don, it will be recast as an embarrassing incident during a sleepover. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. You can get the app Yo! and subscribe to Podcast. We'll yo-yo when the show's ready. You go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for our email facebook.com slash slate gist that's where you can see that video of everyone holding up documents i talked about in the beginning of the show our twitter feed is slate gist email the gist at slate.com i will soon be introducing to the market my tween version of deliverance the only difference from the james dickey novel is that all the urban dwellers who find themselves lost in the georgian wilderness will be named katniss and the backwards inbred hillbilly will get a makeover and be welcomed into the popular crowd and then be killed by Katniss. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Anil Dash. This week I'm guesting on Slate Money's podcast, uh, where we're going to give you some really bad advice. So check us out on the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.